Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series, continuing on with some adult reconstruction. We hope you all like that last episode where we kind of broke down the different types of total knee orthoplasty implants. And this one, we will continue on with some more, you know, some more interesting adult reconstruction stuff. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. What are uh, some of the indications to undergo uh, total knee arthroplasty? Yeah, I think I, I think I got the easy question, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> knee arthritis causing pain, uh, as well as very importantly, no active infections. You know, if you're if they're dealing with some you know active pneumonia or some dental infection, you don't want to do a total knee arthroplasty because you don't want to see the joint and have an infected total knee arthroplasty. Um, so again, knee arthritis causing pain as well as no active infections. Now, a little bit earlier, we talked about some of the recommendations from the AAOS guidelines for non-arthroplasty treatment of knee osteoarthritis. What are some strong recommendations or, you know, I guess levels of different evidence for the surgical management of osteoarthritis of the knee? And, you know, you can, this can be kind of broken down into some of the pre-op things, peri-op things, and some of the post-op things. But I have seen uh, at least, I think, I don't know if it's rest study or orthobulus, but I've definitely seen a question on this before. Yeah. So again, this is one of those evidence-based practice guidelines that as long as you know the general gist of what they're getting at, you'll be able to answer these sort of questions. And uh, I think one of the most recent one was put out in 2015 for the surgical management of osteoarthritis of the knee. If there is a newer one out, then um, I would also understand that one as well, but really not a lot has changed. So preoperatively, uh, obese patients uh, have less improvement with total knee arthroplasty. And uh, that's really why there's a big push to uh, have either a BMI of 35 or 40 be your cutoff for total knee arthroplasty because these patients are one, hard to operate on, and two, um, simply because of the amount of weight that they're carrying around, they're still going to have issues with that knee, even if you did a perfect arthroplasty on them. Uh, perioperatively, uh, so uh, pre and post-op uh, while they're in the hospital, use of a periarticular local anesthetic decreases opioid use. Uh, one other just general test-taking rule of thumb, anywhere in orthopedics where they talk about decreasing opiate use, um, that is a testable thing and one that yeah. they love talking about because um, we have to get away from 
prescribing opiates as much as we do. Granted, it's not nearly as bad as it once was. I mean, uh, my attending in fellowship, he talks about when he was a resident uh, like 13 years ago when they were doing total knees, they were giving patients 200 Percocet post-op. Ooh, 200 yes. Percocets? as oh, yes. wild. <laughs> yes, crazy. Right now, we'll do 30 and then maybe refill at their first post-op visit 15 to 20 of them. Um, but yeah, anything that you can do to decrease post-op opiate use is a high-yield topic. So periarticular local anesthetic decreases opiate use. Peripheral nerve block decreases post-op pain, which helps with their post-op uh, rehabilitation. Tourniquet use, although many surgeons still use a tourniquet, increases post-op pain. Uh, and I've had a few patients come back for their two and a half week, three week post-op visit still say like they feel like they got a Charlie horse in their thigh, like their knee feels fine, but their thigh hurts like crazy. And it's because really? of that, that tourniquet. So um, judicial use of the tourniquet, I had one attending in residency where uh, the tourniquet would go up uh, until implants were in and then tourniquet came down. And then another attending who just did tourniquet up for the entire case until the dressing <laughs> was on. And um, I think if you're, if you're doing a total knee within 45 minutes to an hour, I don't really see a big harm in a tourniquet, but if it's taking 90 minutes, then you should probably think about releasing the tourniquet and only putting it back up when you are cementing in the implants. Uh, Transzenemic acid decreases blood loss and need for post-op transfusions that will also be tested on. Uh, you'll also get asked this every single day by anesthesia, regardless of <laughs> yeah, how often we work with them. They'll, they'll ask, do you want antibiotics and do you want TXA? And it's like, yes, every single case. <laughs> yeah. One <laughs> of my won't. attendings, like he, he gets so annoyed, but he's like, dude, every single time it's the yes. same thing. TXA. Yes. <laughs> he gets yes. annoyed yeah. every time they ask. <laughs> Yeah. And, and we work with the same anesthesiologist and before every case, like, Oh, do you want antibiotics? And it's like, okay, yes. <laughs> Anyways, that's enough of my ranting. Um, and then again, uh, for the evidence-based clinical practice guidelines, uh, like we talked about before, uh, no difference in outcomes between posterior stabilized and cruciate retaining knees. Um, one thing I never saw in residency, but I find very uh, intriguing is an all polyethylene tibial component. Um, there is no difference between all polyethylene or modular tibial components and modular meaning um, metal plus plastic, whether that is uh, fixed bearing or mobile bearing. Um, I kind of wish I could have seen an all polyethylene tibia just because the x-rays look very cool to me. They do. Um, but uh, it's kind of wild that there's a big gap and then all of a sudden there's just tibial bone, but there's no metallic tray, but uh, that might be tested. They, they might show you an x-ray of an all polyethylene tibia and they'll ask you, um, do they have more outcomes, less outcomes, different outcomes or whatever compared to standard total knees and they are the same. Um, there's no difference in outcomes of pain with patella resurfacing or not. I have been turned into a selective patellar resurfacer. Really? Uh, so I, what drives your decision? Patella, 
Yeah, yep. If the if the patella looks arthritic, I will go ahead and uh, resurface it. If it looks fine, I tend to keep it now. Um, cemented versus cementless tibial components are the same. I like cementless tibial components, but I'll typically only use them for the uh, like BMI of 25 year old males with healthy bone. Um, oh, we don't have those in New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's BMI is 30 something plus. <laughs> yeah. It's a, there's, there's the unicorns that walk into the office and you, you can't wait to put in a cementless knee in them because you don't often get to do that. Uh, surgical navigation has no difference in outcomes. Patient specific instrumentation has no outcomes. What they will test you on for patient-specific instrumentation is either a difference in outcomes, which there are none, or increased cost. Obviously, if you're getting patient-specific instruments and implants, then you are going to uh, charge them more for that. So you're going to increase cost. Um, you uh, don't want to use a drain um, and a continuous passive motion machine after surgery does not improve outcomes. And then post-op stuff, I guess CPM could be included in that. Um, if you have physical therapy, uh, see your patient on the day of surgery, they reduce hospital stay length. So if you are savvy enough and you're able to schedule certain patients during the day, you want to get your total needs done first, because if rehab is able to see them earlier, they will get out of the hospital earlier. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program, ROCK, is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access ROCK content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. And uh, anesthesia will always talk to you about this stuff and, and they'll, they'll ask about different nerve blocks that you uh, want them to do or don't want them to do. What are some of the options and um, kind of potential uh, risks or benefits associated with them? Yeah, and you just went over at least like a smooth 10 to 12 <laughs> test questions. So <laughs> I hope those... Uh, those listening go back and, and and listen to those past two three minutes, but some nerve blocks that are commonly used in total knee arthroplasty is one is a uh, well I'll I'll talk about the options. Uh, one is a femoral nerve block, which you're blocking the femoral nerve, but this is going to get you motor and sensory, um, and it's also not going to cover the posterior aspect of the knee. Um, so when you have these femoral nerve blocks, obviously you're getting the the motor to the femoral nerve, uh, which you know controls a lot of the quadriceps muscles. And so postoperatively, uh, these patients are not going to be able to extend their knee 
they may have some knee buckling. So if you're going to have these patients that have a femoral nerve block, typically it's advocated to use a knee immobilizer um, postoperatively. Again, they're going to have some knee buckling. They're not going to be able to extend their knee because their femoral nerve has been blocked. And this, again, it's both motor and sensory. And again, this does not cover the posterior aspect of the knee. The one that at least that I've seen more commonly used is the adductor canal nerve block. And this is just a sensory nerve block only. And it still doesn't cover the posterior aspect of the knee, but it gets kind of those saphenous nerves. And we know that the saphenous nerves, you have some of those branches um, that go towards, uh, towards the kneecap, the infratellar uh, branch, I believe. And so you're just going to get the saphenous nerves. And with the adductor or adductor canal nerve block, this leads to earlier post-op ambulation when you compare with a femoral nerve block, uh, again, because you're taking out their quads with the femoral nerve block. And then one other thing called IPAC, or infiltration between the popliteal artery and the capsule of the knee. This blocks the sensory fibers of the sciatic nerve. So this is actually going to get that posterior aspect of the knee. And I think the pain is, uh, I think you have better pain control when you have both the adductor canal nerve block as well as the IPAC because you're getting that medial aspect of the knee. And then that posterior aspect of the knee, you're going to get with that IPAC again. So they're going to put that, uh, you know, that the anesthesia cocktail um, between the popliteal artery and the capsule, and it's going to get, it's going to block those sensory fibers of the sciatic nerve. Um, so that's, those are good things to know, uh, especially when anesthesia comes to you and you're the second year resident and they're asking you whether you want a nerve block or not, and you have no idea what a nerve block is or the different types, at least now you have a little bit of background. Um and so we've kind of gone through a good amount of like the preoperative stuff and, and what, um, you know, the, the treatment options and some of the different implants, but what are some different approaches used for knee exposure for total knee arthroplasty? The most common approach um, will most likely be the medial parapatellar. I think that is what a vast majority of surgeons do, meaning you do a direct anterior approach. So the incision is centered over the anterior portion of the knee. Um, you dissect down to the extensor fascia, and then you do a uh, capsulotomy medial to the patella, and then you extend that capsulotomy superior through the quadriceps tendon. Uh, then you're able to get the patella out of the way, do your medial uh, release and access the knee. Um, depending on any prior surgeries that have been done, notably like a lateral unicompartmental knee, uh, you may consider a lateral parapatellar approach to the knee. Uh, this is just not as routinely done. Um, you can do a mid vastus where uh, you actually um, extend the incision instead of superiorly through the quadriceps tendon, you go through the uh, VMO. And then uh, lastly is kind of the most muscle sparing procedure of all of them is called a subvastus approach. So it's all done medially. You uh, release the vastus medialis from its fascia uh, medially, and, you're re and then you retract that entire muscle belly out laterally. The patients that uh, are not ideal for that subvastus approach are the very muscular BMI of like 34, 35 males that look like refrigerators. 
uh, when they're sitting there in your office. <laughs> Those are not the oh, ideal patients for subvastus approach where if they at all say that they were a linebacker at any point in their life, you're probably not going to do a subvastus approach on those patients. But <laughs> the most, the people who benefit the most from those are the very petite ladies who are a BMI of 23 and they're in their seventies and they just want to go out with their uh, silver sneakers class again. Those are the, those are the ones that are going to do really well with the subfastest approach. Uh, despite all of these different approaches to the knee, there's no difference in outcomes. Um, if you have a, a quad sparing approach, though, like I said, if they are very muscular and you cannot get the exposure that you want, um, you do risk malalignment of the knee. And we're not talking malalignment of like varus and valgus of the knee, it's mostly a rotational issue with the knee because you're not able to adequately access the femur uh, for uh, placing that four-in-one cutting jig uh, to do the chamfer cuts and the anterior and posterior. And so how you're going to set that on there is actually with too much internal rotation of that component. And, and then that's kind of bad news for a total knee arthroplasty. Yeah. But say... Um, and these are more for revision type procedures. Um, what are some of the extensile approaches to the knee? Yeah. So one is the quadriceps snip. And again, just like you said, these are going to be used for like these revision surgeries or surgeries, uh, or patients that have like, you know, really bad flexion contractures, a lot of scar tissues. And you use these extensile approaches after you've done like everything else. So after you've, you've gone and you've moved the, uh, you know, the fat pad, you've done your, uh, synovectomy, you've cleared the medial and the lateral gutters, and you're still having some problems, you know, everting the patella. Um, these are some different options of things that you can use. One is called the quadriceps snip, where approximately uh, in a quadriceps tendon as part of your arthrotomy, you actually carry it at a 45 degree angle and you actually cut the quadriceps and you repair it later on with, uh, you know, you can use another two, number five ethabon or whatever suture that you use to repair it. One is called a quadriceps snip. One is called a quadriceps turn down where you actually peel the, the whole quadriceps like down. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. If you Google it, you can find some really good pictures of the quadriceps turn down. Um, one is a banana peel. Um, and this one I haven't seen too often in books, but some of our attendings use this. And the banana peel, uh, what it is, is, you know, you can do a quadriceps snip approximately. But distally, when you look at the patellar tendon, you actually peel the patellar tendon off the tubercle. So at the end of it, it looks like a like a banana peel. So you call it a banana peel. You're able to get your do that with your um, with your exposure. We did that. We did the quadriceps snip and a banana peel a couple of weeks ago on that same patient I was telling you about that had a really bad contraction. I we went to the revision arthroplasties. And I think we're, I think we're doing this other side pretty soon. So I, I assume we'll probably do kind of a similar approach. And also, um, likewise, you repair that at the end with some, uh, you know, some heavy non-absorbable sutures. And then lastly, you also have the tibial tubercle osteotomy. I haven't seen this used. Um, I don't know how many times you actually need to do the tibial tubercle osteotomy. Um, uh, have you, have you had to use this, uh, the osteotomy at all in your fellowship? I know it's just something to know and have in your toolbox where you can, use to get a little bit more exposure in the evert and be able to do the case. But, um, have you had to use that at all? I haven't had to use that in residency yet. Yeah. So we actually will tend to 
go more with the osteotomy okay prior to doing a the banana peel just because it's um i personally like the bone-to-bone healing of a tibial tubercle osteotomy compared to the banana peel uh kind of bony to ligament uh healing um but it's again i mean I don't think that there's a big difference. And the thing with an osteotomy is you do run the risk of a uh, proximal tibia stress fracture. And so um, I think it's just kind of either what you were trained to see or what you feel more, most comfortable with is going to guide you kind of as, as you go through this. And again, um, they're not going to show you a case where you're going to have to choose between a uh, banana peel or a, quadriceps snip or a tibial tubercle osteotomy like that's uh that's more for uh uh debate in like a arthroplasty conference rather than on a test so for those of you that are like oh crap how am i going to decide which one (laughs) they they're not going to test you on that because that's too unfair of a question to ask we Hope you all enjoy listening to this episode. We hope that you've hit the subscribe button by now. We are a good amount of episodes in, and we hope that you're subscribed so you get updated every time we drop a episode. And we're working on a bunch of new things for this year, so stay tuned. And until next time.